0: I'm going to do a Tim and take off my shoes while I preach. Just don't stare at my toes. They can be a bit mesmerising. <laughs> I love John. Not talking about myself here. Not the way that John talks about himself. I love John as a writer. He's all heart, isn't he? You've got Matthew, the man of and You've got John, who's just all heart. In this account of the crucifixion, uh, of Jesus we get two key areas that we can reflect on and the, the first one is who Jesus is and the second one is as a consequence who you are and who we are so let's let's go through that um, let's notice five details we're going to walk through the passage and we'll notice five details in the text and the first one is that Jesus is the scapegoat Um Verses 16 to 18 says this, So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Jesus, in this passage, is taken outside the city to be crucified, to Golgotha, which... It was also called skull. It's Aramaic, right? It says it there for us. Um, this might be because of the shape of the hill, topography, or, and most likely, it's a metaphor for the death that took place there. Thing is, though, Golgotha was outside the city walls. What's the meaning of that, though? Jerusalem is a holy city, it's considered holy. And lots of things had to happen outside the city walls in Jerusalem. Um, even defecating, a.k.a. pooping, had to happen 3,000 cubits outside the city wall. That is a K and a half. You'd have to trek that far to relieve yourself. And God commands Moses to, to take the, the sacrificial bull once it's killed outside the city walls. And anyone, such as a leper, anyone ceremonially unceremonially. ceremonially unclean, had to be cast out outside the city walls. However, in this case, we look at Leviticus 16. In this chapter, we learn that in ancient Israel, the priest would bring two unblemished male goats. And casting lots, one was chosen as a burnt offering and the other, our scapegoat, to have the people's sins transferred upon it and then ritually, ritually transferred, and, then, uh, and to bear them away, to be released into the wilderness, outside the city. Jesus is our scapegoat. Here, we have an image of the Roman soldiers taking charge of Jesus. And ironically, in this moment, Christ, he's totally in charge. Uh, we see this right up to the end where he says, "'It is finished.'" He's there to fulfill the task at hand. It's all part of the plan. And uh, why? Because you and I, we need the scapegoat. He willingly takes the cross and bears your sin to Golgotha. In his procession to this hill, innocent Jesus is carrying the cross. This is he's walked from, uh, to, to, pardon me, Golgotha, through the city. And it's clear that John omits the gore and horrendous details of the crucifixion. And instead, he focuses on the weight of our sin being carried by Jesus, our scapegoat. A far worse cup of wrath than uh, physical pain could ever be to bear your sin. In crucifixion, following a horrendous flogging, the victim was forced to carry the crossbeam. Right? So it wasn't the whole cross, but the, the, the bit that he'd be uh, you know, nailed to, his arms, that, that cross beam, he'd have to carry that through the city. It was a walk of shame through the city. You'd be spat on and mocked by the people because you were counted as a criminal and you were on the march to death. And Jesus was humiliated in this experience, counted as a common criminal. In this instance, the crossbeam, it symbolises your guilt and mine, our sin, transferred to the scapegoat and uh, representing the doom to come outside the city. Walking naked and mutilated, Jesus was publicly shamed with the weight of your sin and with mine and he bore it publicly. But praise God, Praise God, he bore it willingly. He bore it willingly, and he bore it for you. And uh, I tell you that Jesus was not out of control. Those soldiers were not in charge of Jesus. He surrendered. He was on a mission to take your shame and humiliation on that road to Golgotha. But what does this tell us about us? Oh, in a great sermon by my, one of my favourite guys to listen to, uh, Charles Spurgeon. In response to this very verse, he asks his congregation a question that I'm going to ask you today. He says this, Can you say that Jesus has carried your sin? Can you say that Jesus has carried your sin? The only way to know this is that you've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and you've repented of your sin. If this is you, then praise God. Can I tell you, you do not bear one ounce of that wrath. You do not bear your guilt. Christ willingly takes it. However, if you deny Christ's offer to bear the burden and curse of your sin, to suffer the wrath of God on your behalf, if you choose to bear that, then you choose to bear the weight and the guilt of your sin Yourself before God in judgment. You choose to bear the wrath of God yourself. This must be taken seriously, right? Spurgeon put it like this. He says this. Either Christ must die for me or or else I must die for myself. The second death. If he did not carry the curse for me, then on me must it rest. Forever and ever. Point two. Jesus is the king of kings. Verses 19 to 22 says this. Pilate had noticed, had a notice, of me, prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate and said, hey, wait a second, don't write king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, I love his answer, what I have written, I have written. See, Pilate sees something more than even the supposed men of God can see right now. We know that in chapter 18, he sees the innocence of Jesus when he says, I see no guilt in this man. And now, Pilate's insisting on calling him the king of the Jews. It's fairly reasonable to assume that Pilate's ploy here reflects more so his agenda to to publicly justify the killing and execution of an innocent man and to use it, again, as a warning, perhaps, to uh, uh, would-be rebels and annoy those pesky Sanhedrin who've disturbed his mourning thus. uh, It's also notable that Romans... Uh, believe that their pagan gods could take on human form. So here's Jesus, he's performed miracles, and and here he is, clearly innocent, and he's he's probably thinking maybe it's a bit risky to continue interrogating Jesus at this time. But why does John include it in this narrative? Is he just showing us that Pilate enjoys annoying the Sanhedrin? John's extended and detail and attention to this fact about this, this title that they gave to Jesus, that's actually just a John thing. You don't see it like this in the other Gospels. John is the one who pays particular attention. He's got a theological purpose in it. Well, we know that John elsewhere in the book has written about this moment of Christ's crucifixion as his glorification, as his lifting up. Notably, we see this in uh, chapter 12, verse 31, and Jesus is predicting Judah's betrayal and Peter's denial, and he says this, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. If John wants to show you one thing right here. He says this, that it's, a, it's not a moment of defeat for Jesus. Jesus. It's not a moment of humiliation, but it's a moment of triumph and it's a moment of victory. Here we have our Christ already enthroned, wearing his crown. We have Christ as king. And it's the final fulfillment of the prophecy we see in Daniel chapter 7 a prophecy from 500 years before Christ even existed where he talks about seeing the Son of Man lifted up. In my vision at night, verse 13, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. There have been many kings, haven't there? Many kings throughout time who've portrayed themselves as great. They've had big armies like Kim Jong-un or I don't know, lots of big armies. (laughs) Enormous wealth infrastructure you know hitler was praised for this road he built so they get the armaments around statement-sized tombs like those of the egyptians my big question for those guys is where are they now what happened to all that stuff now what jesus has offered in his glorification as he suffered on the cross is of greater worth than anything this world can give this is a kingdom of treasure which moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot steal so what does it tell you about us ladies and gentlemen death is not the end we're now part of an everlasting kingdom with christ as our king not one of this world but one that actually offers real hope i never forget Tim talking about that video um, of, of the COVID, you know, when one day when COVID ends. I don't know if you remember that, that illustration he gave and the, they had this fancy footage and stuff of this big choir singing, looking forward to the end of COVID. That's not real hope. Real hope is in the eternal kingdom. When we take up our cross and follow him, when we endure persecution for his sake, uh, we know that there's a far better reward and a higher glory than this world can ever offer. In Matthew 10, Jesus put it this way. He says, Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Has the faith you found in Christ shifted your desires away from this world and on to eternal glory? I pray that it has. Point three. Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. 23 to 24, verses 23 to 24. When when, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. This, so this is what the soldiers did. It's hugely significant, right? This is hugely significant. This, John is likely writing his, his gospel about 90 to 95 AD, decades after the resurrection of Jesus. And in light of his matured insights into who Christ actually is. It's also fair to say that there were some naysayers, right? that there were false prophets who were arguing against the incarnation of Jesus and also the notion that his death and resurrection had any saving power. John's likely responding to this as well. Christ's fulfillment of prophecy matters for John, but it matters for you and I. And this is one of the prophecies that Jesus fulfills. John's making sure that we know about it too. David prophesied this very moment, a thousand years before Jesus even existed in the Psalms. The difference between that and now, a thousand years, it's like smack bam in the middle of the dark ages. David never met Jesus, the man of Jesus at this time. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Psalm 22, verse 18. And John's clearly setting out an argument for Jesus as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of prophecy. I think it's worth a while, pausing for a second, to think about the statistics here. Let's think about and understand how unlikely... It actually is that these fulfillments of prophecy would actually occur by chance. So, what is the probability of one man fulfilling the major Old Testament prophecies made concerning the Messiah? Keep in mind this. Some of these prophecies were made many years before Christ. Daniel, he prophesied 500 years before Christ. Micah, 700 years. Um, Isaiah, 740 years. And David, 1,000 years before Christ. And none of them had ever met the man of Jesus. Not only that, these events are happening around Jesus. It's not like Jesus has a bucket list that he's checking off. Um, Like, for example... uh, uh, what the Roman soldiers did with his clothes in this particular verse we're looking at, right? Uh, that they didn't break his legs, but they did break the legs of the guys either side of him in that gave him that particular death blow. Uh, that he was offered vinegar and gall. That he had his side pierced for our transgressions. That he was where he was born in Bethlehem and the choices of Judas and the Sanhedrin, the choices of Pilate. Uh, these are all happening around Jesus. Jesus is not... If he's just a man, if he's just a dude, he's, he's not controlling these things. Uh, Peter Stoner is this professor, professor of, at, at, at um, Westmont College. And he conducted a study with using 600 of his math, best mathematical uh, students at his university to calculate these very probabilities. Um, these were verified by the American Stan, uh, Science Authority and later, Peter Stoner, because of his work on such things, became the chair of, and this is after this study, became the chair of the American Science Authority. So they looked at just 48 of the prophecies. I mean, They looked at heaps of different variables. We're going to today talk about the, the 48 he looked at. The prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And they arrived at an extremely conservative conclusion that the probability of just 48 prophecies being fulfilled by one person is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's 157 zeros. I typed those in on my phone, those zeros, by the way. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> <laughs> How big is that number? Well, I couldn't find a word for it. Can I tell you now? I went on all the converters. I'm not a brilliant mathematician, but I could not find the word for this number. Stoner illustrates the size of this number this way. He says that if you were to count at a rate of 250 per minute, do you know how long it would take you to count to that number? 19 million years is how long it would take you to count to that number. And the, the probability of Jesus fulfilling 48 prophecies in his lifetime is one chance in that many. So what are these chances? Slim doesn't cut it. And there's not even a word for that number. Right? Uh, Far out. It's a miraculous improbability. But get this. That's just 48 prophecies. Jesus fulfills more than 300 prophecies. Who can, some say some, some scholars said closer to 500 was the tally. Who can fulfill that many prophecies? I'm telling you today, that's only God. <laughs> that's only Jesus. If you want to know more about this guy, Peter Stoner, come and see me, I'll tell you about his book called Science Speaks. But how does that apply to you and me? If Christ truly is who he says he is, Then we need to take this gospel seriously. So many people mourn for the crucified Jesus, his suffering on the cross, and it was bad, it was ghastly. However, John in this passage is not calling us to mourn for the crucified Jesus, who in his death on the cross is glorified by the Father and who's victorious over sin and death. Instead, I encourage you to mourn truly for the ones who choose to bear their own sin and the wrath of God. If we take this message seriously, then isn't hell too hot and an eternity too long for us to keep this message to ourselves? This is a victory that has been won for the people of this world and been won for the people in our community. Sharing this message I get is frightening. Sharing the gospel with people, especially strangers or even close friends, it's frightening. But I encourage you not to fear the conversation about the gospel. Where to expect persecution? Instead, trust the Holy Spirit to work with the mustard seed of the gospel that you've planted to produce the largest tree in that person's garden. Because the Holy Spirit is alive in it. And he'll choose to transform the hearer from within when he says so. You can be assured that the Holy Spirit is at work behind the scenes all the time. And also know this, that our community need Jesus. They need Jesus. Point four. Jesus is the head of the family. 25 to 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. And he's talk, John's talking about himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus is calling the shots here. Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, is no longer around to care for Mary. And normally the next eldest son would take over to care for his mother. But Jesus' brothers, they're not followers at this point. And he instructs the establishment of a new familial relationship between Mary and our narrator, John, the disciple whom he loved. He says, woman, here is your son. And this says to the disciple, here is your mother. This family, it's the family of believers, the body of Christ, where Jesus is the head of this new family. Jesus at this point, he's not too caught up in the immense suffering that he's going through to forget the tenderness he bore for his people. This is t- This is the same time Remember that Jesus asks for the forgiveness of the people crucifying him. Jesus is thoughtful and, 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 and tender towards the people that he's dying for, the people who are nailing his hands into that cross. He's dying for them too right there. And uh, he's instructing and connecting these relationships within this family. He establishes a deep unity and relationship between the disciples and showing them that what they should have solely a relationship, a familial relationship based on the fact that together they are followers of Jesus. John also highlights that in Jesus' ministry, in this passage he highlights that in Jesus' ministry, women are elevated and cherished. Jesus' treatment of women in this particular moment is drastically contrasted to that of the rabbis of his generation, who wouldn't even speak to women in public. Even his disciples were surprised in chapter 4 when he talked to the woman of Samaria or to Mary Magdalene, who is standing here amongst these four with the redeemed. Um, it's incredible. Um, in this passage, John juxtaposes the brutality of this world with the four Roman soldiers. We see that it's four Roman soldiers because they divide the garment into four shares against the four women there mourning John, mourning Jesus. He's apt to highlight the elevated position that Christ affords women and the widows because these women they represent the tenderness and the peacefulness of Christ and by extension his followers. Who are these new soldiers of this kingdom? It's followers like these women, like Mary, like Mary Magdalene, who have been delivered from demon possession. This is no military leader like the Jews were expecting to come and restore the kingdom of David and overthrow the Romans. It's not a physical kingdom. This, this is the prince of peace. Here to establish his eternal kingdom, whose dominion will never end. This reflects the nature of this family, doesn't it? The nature of our church. This is God's kingdom. So what does it mean about who you are? Can I tell you? You are who Christ says you are. Not what this world says. And what he says is that we are family. In Christ we have a new life. A new family and a new purpose. Like Jesus instructing John to care for Mary after he is gone, we too are to love one another with our time, with our fellowship, our counsel, generosity, like a son would love his mother. We ought to allow God to use us when we see others suffering and when we see the comfort of those, uh, sorry, to comfort those whose comfort is being torn away. We're family. We're family. Point five. My last one. Jesus is the Passover lamb, unblemished and innocent. Verses 28 to 30, the death of Jesus says this. Later knowing that everything had now been finished. Knowing. He's omniscient. He knows what's going on right now. He's in control. Jesus is still in charge. He's on a mission, and in a moment we're going to see that it's going to be finished. He's going to complete the work on the cross. And so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked it. They soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus lips when he had received the drink Jesus said it is finished with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit in verse 14 of this chapter we we read that Jesus died at the same time as the passover lambs it says It was the day of preparation for the Passover. And here's Jesus in human likeness, our Passover lamb. And he suffered physically, though. His body had been through trauma, and at this stage it had left him thirsty, most likely from all the blood loss, fairly parched. However, God's wrath in hell is also referred to as a great thirst. We see this in the request of the rich man, right? Who calls for a, a drop of water to cool his tongue. Jesus here has consumed the Father's wrath. He's consumed that cup dry. He bore the full curse owing for the sin of mankind. And this, this is the worst of it. For a holy God to bear our sin that we might be made blameless in his sight. We might be made unblemished. We read in Isaiah 53 that another prophecy that's being fulfilled here, that he would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. And he truly was, wasn't he? John ensures that we see this in his attention to the detail about the wine, vinegar, and gall. Jesus symbolically here receives the sponge of vinegar and wine and gall, vinegar, wine, and gall, pardon me, on hyssop branch. Matthew's Gospel tells us that actually he was offered it earlier and he denied it because it was a concoction made to dull pain. Um. But Jesus ensures that his suffering is suffering to the fullest. And it's now, just before he gives up his spirit, that he fulfills this prophecy from Psalm 69, 21. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. It's a symbolic reference also to Exodus, isn't it? Where the hyssop is used to dip in the blood and paint on the walls and the doorways so that the spirit of death passes over the Lamb's blood. Here, Jesus, saving mankind by the blood of his unblemished sacrifice, has meant, has meant that, the, that God has passed over our sin. Jesus is the Passover Lamb. As I finish, um, let us hold dearly to these three words. it is finished let us remember that it is to that everlasting fiery thirst that you and i were destined had it not been for the work of christ on the cross it is finished he's finished his glorious mission on earth the price required to atone for your sin has been paid in full it's finished so who is Jesus? He's victorious. And who are we? We're saved. Let's pray. Father God, Jesus, I thank you so much for your work at the cross. Jesus, I thank you for the sacrifice made to atone for our sins. Lord, I pray that you would bring the reality the truth, and set set us free with the truth of your saving power, the saving power of your sacrifice on the cross. Would you bring it uh, to the hearts of every person in this room? Would you plough that hard ground? Lord Jesus, that we could all together say as followers of Jesus that you bore our sin on the road to Golgotha that you were our scapegoat, that you were our sacrificed Passover lamb. Father, that we can be this family with you, our King of Kings, as our head, Lord God. Lord, I thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.